Welcome back, scoundrels, to Horror in the Hills. I'm Bran. And I'm Lynn. And this is Movie Slash Book. <laughs> A series where Lynn and I um, ingest, or not ingest, that's a weird word, <laughs> consume uh, different medium for the same story. I watch a movie and Lynn reads a book. And today we are doing The Shining. Another Stephen King, because I know how much you love those. Well, I've only actually read two now. <laughs> and we're 50 50, because I hated it, but this one was good. So, uh, we're going to try a little bit different format with the questions this time. We're not using our standard questions, like at all, are we? No. And. Somebody came up with a bunch of questions tailored specifically for this, based on book club stuff, right? Yeah, it's just the kind of like discussion questions you would have if it was a book club, because we're not really comparing them. We're trying to talk about them without having shared the same media, and I figured that would more effectively do what we're trying to do. All right. Well, shall we get into it? Let's get into it. Get into it. Um, so the first question, this is actually one of my questions. Are we still going to read what they're about? Oh, yeah, we got to do that, huh? So synopsize real quick? Uh, yeah. All right. Jack Torrance's new job at the Overlook Hotel is the perfect chance for a fresh start. As the off-season caretaker at the atmospheric old hotel, he'll have plenty of time to spend reconnecting with his family and working on his writing. But as the harsh winter weather sets in, the idyllic location feels ever more remote and more sinister. And the only one to notice the strange and terrible forces gathering around the Overlook is Danny Torrance, a uniquely gifted five-year-old. All right. From Metacritic. A married couple with a small son are employed to look after a resort hotel high in the Colorado mountains. As a result, they are the sole occupants during the long winter. The hotel manager warns them not to accept the job because of a tragedy that occurred during the winter of 1970. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. All right. First question. First question. This is one of my questions. Where does the horror come from? Uh, you going to take this one first? Since it's your question. I suppose I can field it first. Um, and by where does the horror come from? It, what is it that makes this a horror story is what we're shooting for. Um, I think this is one of those existential style and psychological mostly. If you're not understanding what's going on. So you... Maybe. So you think it's more of, it's just all psychological and it's in, in his head and there's not actually a curse or a haunting well, that, or whatever on the hotel. Doesn't necessarily have to be. It, it's psychological effects. Not necessarily that it's all in his head, it's messing with his psyche. Mm. And existential of understanding yourself. I concur, and I think that's part of uh, the reason that the hotel, as it were, attacks um, 
Jack because he's weak. He is quite susceptible. So he's the most vulnerable and the easiest to get through from this psychological standpoint. Okay. But I mean, obviously also it's the horror definitely comes from the, would you call it a curse or a haunting? Because I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a haunting if not everyone's really aware of it. Because people still go there and it, it only locally really is it considered a haunted house or a haunted place. Um, from my understanding with it, I wouldn't, I don't know. I, I don't think it really falls into either of those categories. Maybe cursed a little bit, but it's the souls that are killed there are trapped there. So if anything of those two, if you made me choose, I would go with curse. But it, um, there is something very specific about that area in general. Like not even the hotel, just it's a malevolent it's in spirit the to that area. I I agree. Um, I I think the fact that the uh, spirit or whatever moves from the burning hotel into the shed at the end before moving on shows that it is a spirit in the land, more so in the land than the hotel itself. I'm going to keep quiet on some of my thoughts on that. Of course, this is a podcast where we're talking about it, so naturally keep quiet on your thoughts. Because it's spoilery for the next. Ah. So, so, obviously, just to throw it in there real quick, we'll recover. Later, we'll probably be doing Dr. Sleep next. Isn't that the plan? That is the plan. So we'll be doing Dr. Sleep next, so that'll be fine. All right. Um, what is the purpose of color usage is how I worded the question because you made me do it and I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I did because I had just the vaguest idea of what I was trying to say. The use of color, um, what is it? symbolizing the metaphor of it what is the color trying to get across because color is used quite a bit in the book because uh wendy she sometimes describes her feelings in color you know pink when she's happy and black when she's you know at her worst you know when she's been thinking about the divorce and everything but it's not just that like in the hotel they uh they like he wrote like more than one person wrote it I don't know even if it's intentional or not, but um, constantly brings back up like the color and pattern of the carpet and the wallpaper. And it's blue and black. Okay. So the hotel's got this blue and black coloring to it. And they're interwoven together and it's described as, you know, shadow. So it's hard to see what it really is. And I think that even the design itself and the way it's described is a metaphor for the entire thing. That it's shadows and you can't really see what the hotel itself is. Yeah. But I think more than that, because blue generally um, is used for uh, positive feelings like peace and comfort and happiness. And the black is your fear and mystery and sometimes addiction. Black is used for addiction. And it's 
woven in and taking over the blue in the pattern in this carpet. Because he says it a lot, the black and blue carpet and the walls. Interesting. So, yes, that's the only thing I wanted to talk about, and that's what I meant by that question. Okay. So, uh, the colors differ greatly in the movie. Uh, In the beginning part, Wendy and Danny wear quite a bit of red, and they're not wearing all red or mostly red or anything, but they always have something red, like a little piece, boots, an undershirt under a sweater or something. And Jack is wearing mostly greens, but sometimes a little bit of brown, too. Yeah. At the beginning. And green and brown are very earthy colors. So it could demonstrate that maybe he does have kind of a sense of his own self, his own centeredness a little bit. Yeah. At the very least, projecting, maybe. Um, Touching on the green a little bit. This was first thought, so I doubt it, but a little bit of the prosperity that they're supposed to be getting from this. New opportunities and suchness. And then red is, red's like the main color in the movie. There's red all over the hotel. A lot of the doors are red. The carpet has a similar design, but it's red and like an orange or yellow, kind of. Like marigold, but it's got that weave. Yeah. Like, it's a red base, but it's got that kind of a diamond weave pattern. The the main one that we see. And then the only area in the hotel that isn't has no red is the staff quarters. Or the staff section of the hotel where their apartment is. And it's a really light blue. And... That stood out to me because you wake up in the morning, you see the blue, it kind of puts you in a more peaceful place. Getting off work. They have the solid blue carpet in their quarters in the book, too, which is why I think the blue is the peace and happiness. And the walls, too, yes. I didn't notice the carpet there. I don't don't recall seeing it all. But then, um, after significant conversations with Wendy and Danny, like you, with Wendy, you see her wearing less red. So the last time she really wears any significant red is when her first major confrontational conversation, wow, that was a mouthful, (laughs) (laughs) Um, with Jack happens, where he's, whenever I'm in this room, whether I'm typing or not, if I'm in this room, leave me the fuck alone. And it's frames that, like, she walks in and you see her bright red boots, like, but it's very, it stands out. She's wearing like a denim dress. Yeah. But in their back and forth, she it's just a straight on for her. And you've got, I don't, I think it's the windows and then the white wall behind her. And she's like in the wall with the black of each window on either side of her. And then Jack, you see a big area. But it, focusing more on Wendy there, it's, you only see the blue. Until she goes to leave, and then you see the red again, and that's the last time she wears red. I think there might be more, but I I don't think so. No, I paid really close attention. She didn't. And then Danny, for the most part, the last time he wears red is his last real conversation with Jack. Um, when he comes in to get a toy, and Jack's just sitting on the bed, and they have a talk. And then he doesn't wear red again for a while until the final conflict. 
So what do you think the symbolism of the red is? What is it? Um, with Wendy and Danny, I don't know. Maybe it's traces of the influence of Jack on them. You know, that cohesion. But I think with Jack, it becomes the anger and rage. Because that's generally the more common understood interpretation of red. Um, That red flag in front of a bull. Seeing red. Because he starts wearing his red jacket all the time. Yeah. After that conversation with Danny. Or at least every time we see him. Well, that's a certainly different use, but... Kind of gets to the same places. It does kind of get I mean, to the visually same on the screen, it gives you what you need. Yeah, because the, the, the blue-black is definitely subtler, but I like the, the black taking over the happiness of the family, his addiction and his fear. Yeah, so, I mean, Jack, it's not even like it's a subtle transition over, it just flips. And then... I did note um, Danny's sweater at the end is red and a couple different shades of green, I think. I know it's hard to tell. <laughs> Alrighty. Is that all we have for color? Yes. Cool. Who is the true protagonist and antagonist? So, I think it switches halfway through the book. Okay. Because I think in the beginning, Jack is the protagonist. It's his story and his struggle and he's fighting his addiction and he's winning at points but he's got his low points too and then when they get to the hotel he has his bad points there too but he he's firm in telling himself no and not again and like he has they have a he has a really bad low but they come back and they have a good time over thanksgiving and whatnot so it's his story and he's battling his addiction if and addiction and his anger problems can be an antagonist and kind of he could be both at the same time but then i think it switches um and the moment i think it switches is when he tosses out the part to the snowmobile because then while it's still told mostly to this perspective of jack the after he gives in, because he, he fights it, and this is the point where he really stops fighting it. He tosses the parts off, it gets buried in the snow, and it's like the hotel now has its hooks in him. Mm-hmm. So he's no longer, I think at this point, actually Jack anymore. And I think now Danny is definitely the protagonist at this point. I mean, he's kind of one for through the whole book, but it's just him at this point because this is also when he starts mind screaming to uh halloran Halloran. and it's now told more from to his perspective than jack's so i think it actually switches protagonists okay an antagonist and the antagonist when it switches uh is jack slash the hotel um i gotta go with it's the hotel the whole time and Jack is just a tool that it's using, essentially. Um, it's not real clear in the movie who the protagonist is. If I had to pick anybody, I would put it on Danny. Yeah. Because, uh, is he? Not really, but he, he demonstrates right from the beginning. Like, well, Tony, I don't want to go to the hotel. Yeah. And 
deep rooted fear of it. No, I but, think I think in the beginning it's it's his addiction and his past more than the hotel, because it's a lot of his inner demons more so than the outer influence of the hit- hotel upon him. Yeah. Up until this midpoint. Seeing it, I can't really give it that because you don't get much of that in the movie. Oh, that's when he starts hearing the uh, the voices, too, is this midpoint. Because he doesn't, they're kind of just single words or single sentences that you could almost write off as your own thoughts. Yeah. But about this midpoint here is when he starts getting more, when he starts seeing the ghosts and hearing the voices and conversing with them. And that's when I think his own weakness is no longer his antagonist. He's given in, he's lost, he's become the antagonist. Could be. This is the derogatory mark in this conversation. There, there, like I said, you don't really get... The pieces are there, but there's sprinklings of the history of Jack. But it, there's no demonstration of him actually struggling with these things. Are there, like, flashbacks or something for with his father? That's not even a thing at all. But, okay. Yeah. Which, as, like, this particular section here made me realize, like, this story would be so much better done as, like, a long format series. Does he like, break the CB radio it, in the movie? Kind of. He makes it um, non-functioning, but he doesn't really break it. Because hmm. that's, I think, his last victory. His last victory? Or his the climax of his fight with his inner demons is when he breaks the CB radio because he's having the dream about his father and he hears his father's voice coming out of the CB radio uh, telling him to kill Wendy and Danny and he smashes it and he's screaming, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. Yeah. And I think that's when he starts to lose, which isn't the question at all. No, I'm... I'm... <laughs> well, I guess it is a little bit because it, I am talking about when he becomes the antagonist. Yeah. So, because I think we could go into one of the next questions from here, but it's not in order. Oh, was it uh, main conflict? Main conflict. So Actually, you... we'll come back to that. Oh, okay. Let's circle back around on that. We'll just run in circles here for a minute. Okay. Um, I think the better question here now is, does the hotel hold any influence over Jack? Yes. And if so, how is it demonstrated? I don't remember asking. Is this one of your questions? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I like how I had to tell you my questions in advance so you could think about it, but I get surprised right now. (laughs) Well, I think that's a, a yes, definitely. The hotel does have influence over him. And... It's shown, I think, in a few little things when he's down in the boiler room, because it's where he spends way too much of his time going through all the papers that are down there. And in what is described as the Alps of paperwork, just these mountains of boxes of paper, he happens happens to find this uh, scrapbook with articles of all the bad stuff that's ever happened. And when he's reading that, it's as he reads each one about all the killings and the murders and stuff, that's when he starts to really get invested in the history of the hotel, and that's when he starts to start seeing and hearing 
the voices that he can still kind of write off as, you know, like, his it, own I've been thoughts, reading this, but, yeah. so it's kind of leaking in a little bit. But he just happened to find it in all this paperwork. And then there's the wasps in the wasps. Yeah. In the roof, which um, when he finds those, it gets him thinking that uh, a man can't control, isn't always in control of his own actions. Sometimes you can't fight nature. And I think uh, those thoughts are what starts allowing him to go, well, it's not my fault. I'm not doing this. I can't help it. It's not me. Yeah. So I think the hotel put the wasps there. <laughs> not necessarily put them there, but just... It's just a lot of little coincidences. Because he's only reshingling a small section. And this late in the fall. And he gets stung by a wasp. Is, is it nice out, though? or? It is. I mean, not nice enough that the entire hive wakes up. Only one or two do. I'm not very familiar with wasps, but that seems to pan out. And... Um, it's almost like it happened and the hotel put the question in his head. Yes. And then, of course, there's uh, the moving topiaries, which... What are the moving topiaries? Sorry. I know that. Um, clearly not something in the movie. But it's the first real thing that he has to face that the hotel is doing. It's, it's he can't write it off as it's in his head. He tries. Yeah. And he denies it, but it's the first visual uh, attack of the hotel, I guess. Um, and he keeps denying it to himself, but he's got, it's, he can't. And then when Danny mentions that the topiaries move, it's... It's like a slap in the face and he doesn't have a choice. Or... Uh, it pushes him toward anger because he starts yelling at Danny that they didn't move because he's so still... more in... of that denial. Yes. But it's, it's almost like the five stages thing. Yes. A little bit. And he starts to get a lot angrier at this point. And that's when he goes up to two, 2.17. Yeah. And he opens the curtain and then he goes to leave, but he hears the metal on metal of it going in and he goes back in and he sees that it's closed and he knows he had it open and he knows he heard it. But he just leaves, and again, he's blaming Danny for putting the idea in his head. He says, uh, he's a liar, he was a trespasser, he shouldn't have been in there. And it's it's what starts to really, I think, um, it's what's pushing him his anger toward Danny. Because before that, his resistance was his promise to himself and his, I'm never going to do it again, uh, yeah. hurt Danny. So I think it's the hotel pushing his rage toward Danny. And then, of course, you know... Interesting. The hotel uh, affects him when it manifests alcohol. See, that makes a lot more sense for some of my theories. But we'll get into that at the end, I think, maybe, if we remember. Because the hotel was dry. All the alcohol was gone. But it manifests alcohol. So he... Gets wasted again. Yeah. So obviously if it's manifesting alcohol, it's affecting him. I've taken up more than my amount of time. <laughs> you may now talk about the hotel if you would like. Um, mine isn't quite that in-depth, 
so I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> but it, it, I do want to throw a little preface in here of the things that I know. The, what got me to ask this question is the great acting and potential directing of Jack Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick, respectively. Because it's a lot of little subtle stuff. So, like, it's a movie, so it can be difficult to do the inner monologue stuff, um, even though it can be done. Um, I, I think with a visual experience, it kind of pulls you out a little bit, and it's weird. But, like, one of the first scenes where you see it is after the first snow, Jack's just, like, catatonic-faced, almost, just staring out a window, I'm presuming. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it's a window. He's just insert making catatonic face here. Yeah, um, <laughs> he, he's just slack jawed. Eyes are kind of glazed over a little bit, and then he kind of pulls his tongue back in and closes his jaw a little bit, and he raises his eyebrows and he starts looking around, kind of like he's hearing something. Yeah. He's getting a. Yeah, that's a good idea kind of look on his face. And then the next major one goes to the conversation with Danny that I kind of alluded to earlier, where he's just sitting on the bed, same thing, just dead stare out the window. And he notices Danny come in because Danny's trying to be quiet because he doesn't want to upset him. And it's implied that he's having outbursts or maybe... He picked up on some things somewhere. We don't see a whole lot of it. Yeah. Like, it's usually individual people or one-on-one interactions between the three of them. Like, either Wendy or Danny, Wendy and Jack, Danny and Jack. And you notice Danny, and he's you can tell that he's still kind of not quite coherent. And he calls him over, and he sits him down. He's, you know, I love you. You're my little guy, and blah, blah, blah. And then... And this is the exact moment that they got me. Was Danny is you wouldn't hurt me and Ma, would you? And Jack staring at him, he kind of blinks like, "Oh, what?" Like it caught his attention for a second, and then he slips back into it. And this is when I said interesting a moment ago. He actually in the movie he directs his anger towards Wendy. Like, all of it goes to Wendy. Almost none of it goes to Dan. Danny. Dan. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> well, it doesn't, like, hurt him, but he... Yeah. He yells at him and sh- shouts horrible things because he... Like, this is actually, I think, maybe the only real individual interaction between Jack and Danny. And chases uh, him when they're, when they're in the car, they're all three together, obviously. But... Otherwise, they're it's isolated from one another. Because he has to kill Danny. That's what the hotel wants him to do, because the hotel wants Danny. So he does yell at him, and he's angry with him, and he chases him with the mallet. But he, like, beats the crap out of Wendy, because Wendy's in the way. He's got to get her out of the way first. So it's not really directed... Either way, really, she's got to get out of the way first, but Danny is the end goal because he has to kill Danny. But what you said a minute ago is, like, the hotel feeds his rage and directs it towards mm. Danny. 
And it, in the movie, he wants to kill both of them. His and his target is Danny, and Wendy is kind of in the way. But all of the rage that he feels is directed at Wendy. She'll never let me live it down. She's just, uh, but it, you know, the next scene where I think the alcohol is that the hotel, it's like a straight stream into him now, I think is the metaphor there. And, um, after he starts drinking in the hotel bar, that's when things get bad, really bad. They're already kind of... Because Wendy's really just an afterthought up until the point that she physically kind of just stands between him and Danny. He calls her a nag and it would be so much easier if she was dead. And he does contemplate killing her. But the angry attacking thing doesn't happen until she actually gets between him and Danny. When um, the lady in the bathtub chokes him and she blames him for it and she physically steps between them. Yeah. And locks the two of them well, in their room. So that does trigger him in the movie too. Is it, you did this, you did this to him and she, she doesn't get between them but she grabs Danny and runs off. And that triggers him and that's when he goes to the golden hallway and the gold hall or whatever and finds the bar and sits down. He's God, I just want a beer. And then he opens his eyes, and Lloyd's standing there, and it's full of alcohol. But I definitely, I'm glad you made me think of this, because I think definitely think Wendy is an afterthought, not just of Jack, but of the hotel, until she physically steps in the way, and that's why his aggression isn't as targeted toward her as it is toward Danny at that point, because um, the hotel does say to Wendy... You're stronger than I thought. Maybe I should have come after you. See, and I'm, I'm going to throw this out there a little bit now. This is where I think either Stanley Kubrick didn't care or he just didn't understand the purpose of it. Because it's more, in the movie, it's more like the hotel just wants souls and Danny and the Shine don't matter at all. It's just something that Danny's able to do and it's like a plot convenience almost, more than anything. No, no, no. The sh- the shine, the shining is hacking important that Danny has, because uh, Halloran says they're just things like pictures in a book. They can't hurt you, but because Danny's shine is so strong, that's what triggers the hotel to actually be able to hurt the living in this way, to actually choke him and actually scratch and attack physically the living people there and to fully manifest these ghosts it's like a supercharged battery rather than just you know a little battery it gives the hotel something it didn't have before and now it wants it i know those things are there but that's just not present in the movie but back to the matter at hand there's a moment at the end and i know this is drastically different from the book um it's Wendy goes and gets him from the bar. And it's like, there's a woman in room 237. And it's changed because of the hotel in real life. And so Jack goes up there and then comes back to Wendy, gets mad, 
goes back down, and now there's this party. Night, night, roaring 20s type party. The masquerade. Sure. <laughs> and it's- he going to go somewhere and uh, is it Delbert Grady runs into him and spills on him and then takes him to the bathroom to help clean him off and Delbert's talking like you know Jack's always been the caretaker you're you know I've always been here I've always been the butler you've always been the caretaker and another great moment of just in this is Jack's like, well, wait a minute. He starts clenching his hand and playing with it. Like, he's testing, is, is this actually happening? Or, And that's kind of the final moment. And then he slowly stops doing it. And Grady is telling him, you need to correct the boy. You need to correct the wife. And, like, I corrected mine. Because then he gives in. He's like, yes, I had to. My children were being bad, so I had to take care of them. And my wife didn't understand. I had to take care of her, too. Which goes into one of the other things you wanted to talk about. Because that's the movie's version of Take the Medicine. That little interaction happens, too. And um, the you've always been the caretaker. I think it's the, the final pin in this other thing that's been building. Because... Uh, Jack's been using the it's my job, it's my responsibility and when he's fixing stuff and working on the hotel he gets this sense of peace and accomplishment because he likes taking care of it he likes taking care of the hotel and every time Wendy tells him not to go check on the elevator that's operating by himself it's like, oh I have to, it's my job and it's my job, I have to is his excuse and I think this final pin, this Grady telling him you've always been the caretaker so it kind it's, of solidifies that yes, that the hotel is his responsibility he is the caretaker and the hotel needs Danny and he needs to take care of it and give it to him because it's what he wants and Grady says to him, you, you could be manager. You're, you're management material. You just got to get us Danny. So, like, manager material. Yes. Yeah. Because that definitely plays into one of the themes. The, the duty thing is definitely an excuse in the movie, too. But it is only an excuse. He doesn't do a damn thing in the movie. He sits in that giant-ass room, sometimes clacking away on his typewriter. Most of the time, just sitting there. Pissed off because he's not writing. Um, I don't, uh, take the medicine. Take the medicine. That that's... And we're just kind of jumping around in this now. <laughs> that's uh, what he, something he got from his father. His father would say that when he would beat his mother or beat the children, you need to take your medicine. Which was my thought on that is... Uh, I know it's common in movies for an abusive father figure to say you need to take your medicine and then beat the crap out of whoever needs their medicine. But, like I said, in the movie, and it's only the one time in the one conversation, uh, they need to be corrected. Because after that conversation with Grady, it flips how he sees his past, too. Because in his memories of his past before then, his mom was a victim. But after that conversation with Grady, where you need to correct your family, you need to be a husband and a father, 
you need to do your job and you need to correct it. He thinks back on that and he realizes his dad was right. His mom was out of line. He was too young to see what it was that she did wrong, but she must have done something wrong and she needed her medicine. So he sees the entire interaction differently. And his mom is no longer the victim. His dad is the victim. Hmm. I was just going to ask about that, but no, I don't need to. Well, I was going to ask if he continues to have the flashbacks after after it fully takes over him. Yes, but with a different <laughs> But it's a different perspective. With a different perspective. Where his dad was the victim and he was done wrong. And, you know, he beat the kids because we were little shits. We deserved it. He was being a good dad. Yeah. Oh, let's see here. Did that. I don't know. I think we beat that horse. We probably <laughs> did beat that horse. We beat a couple horses. With a mallet. Or I guess in your case, an axe. Do we want to... Do we want to go into the conflict? Uh, is that what's next? What is the main conflict? Sure. Because that actually kind of goes into a couple of the other... I think it ties into the a man can't help his nature. Oh, I vaguely mentioned that already. Mm-hmm. And duty and responsibility and stuff. Sure, <clears throat> main conflict. What is it? Um, it's it's hard because I'm trying to posit like what exactly happens or, or trying to put it in place in my mind. I suppose is a better way to because it like there's obviously a conflict and it centers around Jack. Like I said, it does. The movie doesn't explore any of his background strongly enough. I suppose it's just him struggling with his abusive nature. But again, like it doesn't really explore it. It's just something he bitches about every now and again. With Wendy not letting it go, and Wendy kind of talking about it. His, and, his anger problems. But it, like, there's no real previous setup it just he just kind of starts getting more angry him beating that student that led him to having to be here like i'm sure it says it just i i miss it every time i watch it maybe what i watched it twice this week yeah but it like i didn't realize he was a former teacher yeah because he was all right a teacher, and this is, while he was sober, he almost beat this kid to death. Oh, shit. How did he not go to jail? He knows people. <clears throat> and uh, he when he was drunk when he broke Danny's arm. Which, that I know, that's brought up in the movie. That, like, that's the one time Wendy talks about it, you know. And he... In one of his rants at the bar, he goes into it, and it, you know, I was drunk, I just applied a little bit more pressure than normal, and that's kind of what Winnie says, you know, it's one of those things you do a thousand times, but that one time... Uh, at some point in the book, his internal monologue says that, that he must have meant to do it, break his arm, because he was really violent about it but it's I uh, I think it's kind of important that they have the uh, beating the kid while sober because you could go oh it's just the alcohol it's just because he's always drunk you can blame the alcohol but it's a when he the fact that he almost beat him to death while 
sober. Uh, it means not it's just a, sober. He's sober for like six months or something at that point, right? Or a few months. I don't remember. Because he does have a chip. But um, the fact that he's sober when he almost beats this kid to death makes it an anger problem or a real issue within Jack, not yeah. just something that's fueled by alcohol. Yeah, that's. I like said he just. It, it's almost more like. It's, the movie kind of posits itself as more just a generic supernatural where you move into a place and then it starts influencing somebody or like a possession. Mm-hmm. And like things are fairly fine at the beginning. And like we, we do get the sense that their family is on hard times, that this is kind of a desperation job, but it doesn't give you any of that proper background for why it's important and you get the nuggets as he gets more angry of why he feels that way but it's also at the same time that the hotel is doing these things so is that actually what he thinks and feels or is it the hotel no, I think peer pressuring him into it I think Jack was predis- predisposed to and I suppose we can get into my theory a little bit here now especially like the book's take on it, it almost feels like Danny was unplanned and Jack feels kind of stuck in his situation, that it's not really what he wanted in life, or at least not at that point. Maybe he did want kids or whatever, but not at that point in his life, and he just kind of got stuck there. Yeah, I think think that's accurate. And... That's why, and it, it still fits with the movie because he, like I said, he takes all of his rage, all of his anger is directed at Wendy. But he still loves Danny. And, like, you believe that he loves Danny. But with him being all of his rage going towards Danny, that's the thing that has him stuck to Wendy, and it makes it gives even more plausibility to it. Well, he loves Wendy, too. Mm. Up until, you know... You can learn to love a person over time. that point. And even in that situation. Because, I mean, if he didn't really want to be there, what's stopping him from leaving? Well, uh... Even in Before they got married, they did take a break. Because he's all like... He told Wendy to go make sure this is what you really want. And they say, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back. So I do think he does love Wendy. I, I think the real conflict here is their past and the influences of their parents on them. Not just Jack and his alcoholic, abusive dad and how he's just like him, but Wendy and her mother, too. Because Wendy worries that she's just like her mother and some of her interactions with Jack and Danny are things that she hates her mother for. You're going to have to elaborate for me, because I know nothing of this. Nobody ever talks about this when they talk about The Shining. It's always just about Jack. And I can understand why. (laughs) So, in Wendy's family dynamic, she's a daddy's girl, and she has this connection with her dad, just like Danny and Jack have. And her mother always felt left out. And treated her that way and blamed her for 
their marriage failing because Wendy got in the way. She got in the middle of it. She got between her and her dad. Hmm. So, uh, Wendy starts seeing that dynamic in her family, and she had she asks herself all the time, "Is this how my mom felt when she sees?" Danny and Jack together because they're so close together and she feels left out. She's always like an afterthought to them. You know, Danny loves him more and she has these angry thoughts that go with it that she knows her mother would have felt and her things her mother would say and she finds herself thinking them. So... It explores the generational trauma, if you will, rather quite a bit better. And it's not just the one character. It's yeah, because nobody ever brings up Wendy's story when they're talking about The Shining, because they're usually talking about the movie. But almost everybody that all the other podcasts that I listen to, at least one person has read the book. Because Wendy's got got her issues too. Uh, because she always tries to like hold Danny to her, but he'll always go to Jack. And she always has that moment of just bright anger as soon as it happens. She doesn't act on it, like outwardly, like uh, Jack does. But I think it's part of what makes her put so much blame and weight on Jack. And I think it's part of what Wendy drives him to drink. Yes. Because yes. Uh, it's kind of implied in the movie, but like. It, doesn't explore anything proper yes she's it well yes and no she's a typist she's a part-time typist she types up exam papers for professors at the college and she typed a book for one of them but it's something she can do at home yeah okay so because that goes into it sometimes too sometimes if there's decent interaction with everybody if the dad's out when he comes home, the children want his attention. But I, I, I think she's... But she's not seeing it that way. She's seeing it from her mother's perspective, probably because... Because she's, she's being angry, too. And I think on a subconscious level, at least, she's putting more pressure on Jack as a result of it. Because she is, she is whiny and naggy. And she might even make comments that she's not aware that she makes. Like, at all. And faces. Jack says, you know, she's making faces. You look at me like that. And even if... I mean, he could just be seeing things, or she could really be making faces she doesn't realize she's making. Because she does have have these moments... After I read it. She does have these moments of just bright anger when Danny chooses Jack over her. And, like, I, I can sympathize with that sometimes. It's not anger that I feel... But it is like a disappointment. Jealousy. Not even jealousy. It's well, just disappointment. I'm not talking about Wendy. I'm talking about I'm myself. I'm talking about Wendy. But like, I feel moments of disappointment when uh, the kids bring you stuff and they completely forget that I'm home or they go to you for something. Um, wow, that was interesting. <laughs> Some truth bombs there. <laughs> um, I thought we were going to get into a man can't help his nature. 
Well, we kind of did because we were talking about the generational pressures. I mean, is that a man not being able to help his well, nature? So, and, and it does beg the question: What is your nature? Is it your actual the nature versus nurture thing? And uh, realistically, the correct answer is it's a little bit of both. It is. Um, you know, I think there are some parts of us that are just. So so deeply ingrained in our DNA that that's how we're going to think and feel all of our lives. But you also have the other things that are influential from other people. And you can always, you you can choose to change. I'm not saying it's easy by any means. And I think Jack might have been okay had he not, had they not gone to the hotel yeah. Because he was on that path. But Jack should never have drunk in the first place. Because he should have been aware that drinking is obviously a problem in his family. And he should have never drank in the first place. Well, and that... Um, and that's the first choice where he gave in to nature versus fighting it. Well, his his own personal nature. To be more specific about it. Because uh, when... Sometimes we kind of talk about these things before we actually record a little bit. And I mentioned, you know, part of human psychology is that we go to the things that we know and that we are comfortable with, especially in moments of extreme stress. And that will override any reprogramming that we're in the process of doing or um, maybe that's newer. Yeah. Because it's just so ingrained into who you are as a person. So your tendency is to go to that place that is familiar. Even if it's bad, it's something that you know, so it's comforting to you personally. Yeah. And it, because of that, it does lead to a lot of bad things. Because so many of us have those stains on our history that have impacted us that deeply. As is shown in both Jack and Wendy. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. <laughs> Moving right along um, then. Well, because oh. it, again, not getting into it with the movie, but um, a, a standout line in the movie is when he sits down and he gets his first drink and he's it's the white man's burden. I didn't find what I was looking for because I know there is some kind of reference to it with alcohol, but I'm not. I, I don't know that turn of phrase and that reference too well. But there is some theory, I would call it. And not not necessarily a theory, because in the movie, they, or maybe it is in the book too, I don't remember, um, that it's built on an Indian burial ground. No? No. Okay. So I was right to begin with. <laughs> um, but it, it, Kubrick was trying to make a point about that. And White Man's Burden is a poem by Rudyard Kipling talking about 
the white man's burden is to go into areas that are uncivilized and reteach the people there and for all intents and purposes white eyes them or whatever yeah make them more white maybe not in skin color but in their action and that would tie into the Native American thing tribal peoples First Nations whatever the hell you want to call them <laughs> they're that was some of the idea uh, what was that Manifest Destiny Manifest Destiny yes was the westward expansion and then trying to tame the wild Indian folk that you know for all fairness we did do a fair bit of butchering on them you know we're not innocent and not doing that I think it's exaggerated sometimes but that's personal opinion take it or leave it <laughs> um but it just seemed really weird and out of place to me that that would be his comment there but then again I suppose playing on that you know work hard play hard work hard play hard and Jack thinks he's working very hard because it's all about his obligations and his duties to the hotel and then his duty to his family and him trying to write so that way after they leave the overlook he can provide for them well his his last thought before he starts drinking is he would never hurt Danny again not for the world and that's his last thought before he starts drinking and it goes on to And then that's when, that's when Grady comes in. But no, I was looking to see if it said that in the book, but in the book he says uh, they've landed somewhere in the world. Hmm. Which still fits in with your white man's Or what have you. It's just the specificity of it. Yeah. Because like, to, to explore that a little bit better... Um, People point out, and they do it in an incorrect way, I think, because they point out his use of uh, Stanley Kubrick and the decorations of the hotel and stuff, mm -hmm. his um, use of certain artwork and the phrasing and all this kind of stuff, and that sometimes it doesn't match to uh, tribes that would actually be in the area. And I said, they pointed out his cultural appropriation. thing. if he's trying to make a statement, um, some of the other stuff I've seen on it is like one of the paintings is called mother. And I forget exactly what it means, but it's, he chose things very specifically for their actual meaning from the artist and what it's trying to say artistically. Yeah. Metaphorically, whatever. <laughs> What's up, kitty kitty? And it, it it does bother me when people do that, when they say, oh, how dare he do this? Well, maybe he's got a purpose for doing it, and instead of being offended, you should explore the intention behind it instead of just seeing it and going, oh, my feels. Eh, I don't think we need to go into duty. We've gone into that pretty well. Yeah. In a couple other areas. Now to try to figure out what we want to talk about next. 
What's left? Oh, well, we got the isolationism, the wealth oh, class. Oh, jeez. Uh, the manager. Oh, jeez. Destiny, fate. Oh, jeez. Jack denying his response. Well, it's Jack a victim. But we can go into, is Jack a victim? Because that goes into the other question of his pushing responsibility off. It's true. So is Jack a victim? Um, if you're looking at this specific blip of his life and the events in this story, like this specific at the Overlook, yes, I believe he is because he's a victim of the hotel. It's preying on his emotions and his other self, his secret self, and... His shadow self. His shadow self. <laughs> to tie that back to the colors. <laughs> um, it's preying on that to um, influence what it wants to happen. And if Jack wasn't there, then that wouldn't happen. I mean, and who, like, I'm sure at some point he might still have another incident. And at this point, Danny's very young and children can become quite obstinate as they get older. Especially growing up in a situation like that where the boundaries are loose. Sometimes they're real tight. Sometimes they're pretty free and open. And you're going to test those and see what you can. Well, I mean, it's just the nature of a child anyways. And they're learning to exist is figure out where, what they can and can't do. What's right and wrong, if you will. So, I mean, it's still likely that at some point an incident would might still happen with Danny. Maybe not him killing him, but having an outburst and that being the camel or the straw on the back and... Wendy and Danny leaving you, maybe. I'm going to have to disagree. I think in this little blip of his life, he is not a victim. Before, when he was a child, yes. Now that he is an adult, no. Yes, his hard childhood is something he would have to struggle to get over. But life is tough all over. Yeah. Everyone's got problems. And... I want to clarify a little bit, too. I'm talking specifically about the event with the hotel. Like, he's... Jack's still got a lot of real bad shit going on, and he tries to make himself out to be a victim a lot. He does. Is he a victim of the hotel? I mean, I suppose, but it's just... I mean, because in this situation, you could look at the hotel as a stand-in for his father. You could. But it's his own choices that led him here. Yeah. If he would have just stopped drinking or not nearly beat a kid to death, he would have had tenure at his college. He was up for review for it. Yeah, just it's, because... It's like Wendy says, he he sees a good thing coming, and he finds a way to have something else screw it up so that he doesn't have to take responsibility for it. Which is a form of self-punishment for abusers a lot of times, too. Is that if something is happening that's positive in their life, either intentionally or not, they'll do something to screw it up. Because they don't feel worthy of having good things. 
And, and I mean, that can be something as simple as just sleeping in late too much. Oh, it'll be fine. Oh, it'll be fine. Oh, it's not fine anymore. Oh, how dare my job do this to me? It's so bad. Terrible. And I... I think that's what Jack does. He just lets his anger win out and does something to screw stuff it's up. It's a vicious and, beast. It's a hard battle to fight. And I know. because of that, that's what made him end up on the other side of the country in this stupid hotel. Where I guess, sure, yeah, he's a victim of the hotel. But I definitely think... He, yeah. he essentially made the choice to be here because he beats this kid and it's because he kicks him off the de- debate team because he says he has a stutter. And during the original flashback for that, the kid does have a stutter. But then later when he sees his ghost or dreams about him, the kid talks without a stutter. And it makes you question, did he really have a stutter? Or was that just something that Jack made up to get him off the team? Because this this is a kid who just had everything, and it was super easy for him. And Jack kind of... Resented him. Yes. And But this kid lashes out against him and slashes his tires, and that's when he nearly beats him to death. He doesn't beat him to death while he's kicking him off the team. Yeah. <laughs> it's retaliation for retaliation. Yeah. But it it makes you question, you know, did this kid actually have a stutter or is it just something that Jack made up in his mind because he needed to lash out at something? He wanted an excuse to do something. Yes. Interesting. And it, it, I was by no means trying to justify Jack's actions at all. Um, because, again, using the hotel as a metaphor for addiction and anger, it's when you allow those things to overtake you, you don't have control over yourself and bad things do happen. But no, I guess, I guess you've talked me around to it. Oh, Jesus. Almost fell out of my chair. No, I I was, I was playing semantics with it. I was trying to devil's advocate in the first place, but because he, it is his, his, it is his choices that brought him there and it is his continual bad choices like, to not leave in the first place. Because Wendy says, let's leave several times. Danny says, I don't want to go before they even get there. Yeah. Well, it goes to Lake Stepford-wise, where he kind of made a decision, and they just have to go along with it. Well, they don't. Because he does offer, you and Danny can go stay with your mom, but Wendy's problems with her mom, she won't take that road. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's kind of a false choice, really. So, cause, I mean, I'm sure that they could pay for an apartment. But is that, like, I'm sure they have other intentions of, like, all right, we're going to get this money and we'll be able to do something with it afterwards. Well, the intention is he's going to get his play finished and the board of reviews is going to review his nearly beating a kid to death and let him back at the school on probation. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of lights at the end of the tunnel. Just a matter of getting to them. And he sees them coming and he doesn't want them. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, we kind of Because that's, a, that's that another too. thing Wendy says. He sees tragedy and he goes toward it. 
It's kind of like he, when you cross pass a car accident on the road. Yes, he'd rather have the tragedy than the good thing. It's a lot easier to be a victim than it is to be responsible. And that's one of the reasons that keeps me going back to listening to Jason Stapleton is that that's his big thing. His, a mantra is, it's my fault. Even if it's something that's completely out of your hands, like a deer ran out in front of you, it's my fault. Even if it's not. Because even if the deer crossed your path and destroyed your car, how you react to it, the, the choices you make after that, how you let it affect you, is your fault. The deer might not be your fault, but the aftermath and how you handle that is your fault. And, you know, you can take that to plenty of other more traumatic experiences. More tra- Well, I don't know, deer hitting your car can be pretty traumatizing for people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depending on how bad it is. But, you know, you can, oh, this will never happen again, and go on living in that bubble, or you can start paying better attention. So maybe you see the deer, you know, sooner, and you can start slowing down in, in future incidents, or... You know, whatever it is. Or, you know, just figure out what you need to do to get past that trauma. It's not like you can't overcome your nature. You can. It's just hard. And you have to choose to. You have to want to. You have to recognize what it is, though. And just... I think that's part of Jack's problem is, like, the the denial is a big part of it. Because, yes, he's got his nature, but he's denies that it's his fault and it's his problem to an extent. Like, he does realize he's angry and he says he's never going to do it again. But he does blame a lot of things, a lot of his choices on other people. He lashes out like this because Wendy's a nag. Or he reacted that way because this happened. He couldn't help it. He doesn't really want to change. No. He was like, he says he won't do it again, but he doesn't ever do anything to correct that. Huh? Next question. <laughs> Next question. Uh, I don't know. The wealth class thing is explored plenty by other people. But it's there. Jack sees himself as lower class. He wants to be higher class, but it's almost like he's afraid of that, too. Which, which is another aspect of that, it's, being it's, afraid of it. It's another place he lays blame, too. Is, uh, and he specifically says it to Al, because um, he's here because his drinking problem inevitably led him here, and Al's doing just fine. He says, well, it's so easy when you can just pay your way out of things. So he blames a lot of his problems on the fact that he can't just pay his way out of things. And it's so easy for the upper class to get out of everything. Which, there's a lot of truth to that. There is. But a lot of those people in the upper class, they're not there by happenstance. More people work their way into that position than are born into it. And most of the time, those people who are born into it don't appreciate what they actually have and they end up losing it. I mean, most wealth only lasts two generations after it's gained, at most. Usually it's squandered and lost within the first generation because the the, the kids who were born into it and who are spoiled from it don't appreciate where that money comes from. 
and the work that went in to get it. You know, we look back on history, you know, some of these figures and, you know, oh, how terrible it is that they were so wealthy with, while ignoring all the decisions that they had to make and to get there and the work that they had to put in for it. I mean, present day Jeff Bezos is a really good example. Everybody looks at him because he's the most wealthy man in the world now. But the dude started out of his garage selling used books on his own. Yeah. And then built this international empire of a corporation. And of course, from that. To continue to be off topic, I guess, you only see from your own point of view anyway, uh, being upper class comes with its own downsides. Yeah, because everybody always has their problems. And upper class or wealthy person might not be starving. But it's also a much greater fall if something does happen. I I know that's not quite comparable, but... So to bring it back to the book, Jack blames a lot of his problems, many of his problems on being lower class. Uh, Because with him and and, uh, Jack, Jack and Al... They were drunks together, and they quit together because they were in the same car accident. They hit a bicycle, and that's what made them go dry. And Al's still wealthy and doing fine because he's the upper class and he could buy his way out of it. And Jack's decidedly not. And on this phone call with Al, he says it's so easy when you can just buy your way out of it. But Al is still trying to help him because he's the one who got him the job at the Overlook. Yeah. Because he wasn't, uh, because he's the majority shareholder. Yeah. So he's trying to help his friend out. Yes. But Jack's not seeing it that way. He's seeing it as now he's obligated to do whatever Al says. And he's bitter about it. Which, when you have that perspective, it is like, oh, you're just helping me out because I'm poor little blah, blah, blah. And you're up here in your hoity-toitiness. Yes. But, so what is Al's background then? Like, where does his wealth come from? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know. He, he, were, uh, he's, I don't know where his wealth comes from, but he's, I mean, he's, he's got them, like, lots of money. He works at, he works at the college. He's a dean or something. I don't know. To also because he's also pulling strings he pulled strings to get him just to to try and get him his are they long time friends uh maybe I don't remember because I'm just asking because back into what I was saying that you know just because somebody has wealth doesn't mean that one they can't lose it two where how did they get there did they get there on their own or or were they born into it and even if they were born into it it you know, you still have to work to maintain that. Because even though Al was drinking, he still could have made... Nope, they met while drinking at the school where Al works. And he was born in money. Okay. Steel Barons. God, why can't I think of his name? Uh, it doesn't matter. And he's on the board of directors where he works, not the dean. So he's, he's pulling all these strings for him, but he's nothing but bitter about it. 
that they met because they were always the two drunkest people at the party. Well, and I can see that especially you talked about him doing the work and it giving him a sense of pride and accomplishment because it's something he did for himself. Yeah. And, you know, for especially a man who is kind of like Jack that has those resentments, for people to just give him stuff, it would make him resentful because it's not something he's getting for himself. Well, he's not necessarily being given stuff. He's being given opportunities to do for himself. It's not like Al just gave him, you know, money. He gave him the opportunity to do for himself. He does, but he's not seeing it. He got the job because of Al. He got out of the trouble because of Al. So he didn't actually do it for himself, though, is what I'm saying. He didn't find the job and get it himself, which the movie kind of implies that he just applied for the job and got it. Al's not a figure at all, I don't think. Nope. The, the manager comes out and says, I personally wouldn't hire you, but... If not for Al, which would feed into that resentment. You wouldn't have this job if it weren't for this person who is making me give it to you. So again, that's it's, it's just, in Jack's mind, it would be just the same as Al just giving him money. Well, at least Wendy's okay with getting his help because in the epilogue, Al helps Wendy, gives her a job, and she takes it and she's not resentful about it. <laughs> job doing what typing probably it's all she can do (laughs) (laughs) Mm, i suppose isolation is just about the only thing we have left isolation because that's obviously a big theme it is a big theme no it's it's the big thing that everybody seems worried about like you're going to be isolated are you going to be okay being able to do this job not having contact with anybody for what is it like six months or so November or September August September to May jeez it's like eight months how does this hotel leave that was that was my original question when this first started does it at least explain it that it is like a go to so they can charge a lot of money for the hoidiest of toidiest yes all the best people yes but it still doesn't make sense because this is the first year they've been in the black well, given some of the history, that can maybe make a little bit of sense. How do you keep trying to make something work for that long, though? Well, I mean, black, though, doesn't mean that they're not performing. It's just, like, they're able to operate, but other things maybe keep happening that force money out of their pocket. So it's one of those, if, we, if these freak incidents would stop happening, maybe... <laughs> Because despite all these things happening, people still want to go there, so. But um, on the isolation topic specifically, it, the one thing that really stood out to me is Jack choosing the largest room in the hotel to do his typing work. Because you'd think, you know, being in a big empty room like that, that you wouldn't feel isolated, but it can actually make you feel more isolated because it is so large. Did you get any of that? Yeah, but it's not something I can speak to because in the book, he spends a majority of his time down in the boiler room surrounded by mountains of paper. And he's intentionally isolating himself too. 
because he, he does win you while I'm in here. Leave me alone. Well, he doesn't say anything. She just, there's no reason to go down there. Yeah, no, in the movie. Oh, in the movie. Sorry. I, I talked Sorry. about it earlier. He throws a fit at her. It's one of his, it's his first real outburst of anger. But it's just, you know, a verbal outburst and, you know, he maybe he's been better, but it still catches her off guard a little bit. Like, this isn't really normal for you. So there is that. But it's just him personally isolating. But that, how even though you're in this big open area, that it can make you feel much more isolated. Yeah. Despite But no, you're right. In freedom. the book, he does make personally isolating choices, like... Wendy and Dan go to town and he stays to work on the hotel and they go for a walk and he stays to work on the hotel which or really just hang out in the boiler room looking at old receipts like a crazy person because he's got this idea that he's not going to write the play anymore and he's going to write a book about the hotel yeah which would have been a really nice thing to do for the movie because uh, he started to change the way he feels about the characters in his play. And he has different feelings about them now. So he doesn't want to keep going. And now he's in love with the hotel and he wants to write a story about it. That, that was something else I noticed earlier, too. Oh, and that's uh, another resentment with Al, too, because Al tells him not to write the book. Because for some reason, his have-to-ruin-things reasons, he calls the manager and starts low-key blackmailing him hmm. about the dirty secrets of the hotel and the manager calls Al who then calls him and says don't write the book I'm gonna write the fucking book I got you this job don't write the book and he he feels obligated to agree to it and then hangs up and says I'm gonna write the damn book <laughs> but Wendy is very supportive of him or she's trying to be and she's this goes to back be. to some of the other stuff and he keeps turning around on her and making her feel like shit for doing it. Like, that's a stupid idea. Why would you say that? Not explicitly saying that, but that very passive-aggressive, I, I can't just do that, or yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, she tries to encourage him and, you know, well, why don't you go right for a while? And he just sees it as nagging. So more of that perspective thing. Mm-hmm. Seems like perspectiveness is a very important thing in this book, too, or this story. It is. His perspective changes a lot as it goes through, like, his views on the characters in his play. Wow. <laughs> I suppose we should start wrapping it up here a little bit. Probably. So, I did have a question of the history of the Overlook, and I guess it's covered in the preface, or the prologue of the book which we did not have that copy and I didn't look into it but I was, it's more of a curiosity thing than anything like is there a cycle to it or like every 10 years or so or I don't know I didn't read it like that it definitely, I just skimmed it but it seems to be there from the very first and I, I asked that because there's the photo at the end of the movie that Jack is in even though you know he shouldn't be because it's July 4th 1921 and I was just wondering if that was a very if that was significant due to 
that being the first real hotel specific incident or something like that because like yeah there's problems right from the start but shrug emoji yeah and then your final question would you be able to work in off season at the overlook oh i told you this is the personal curiosity question is if you did it's, it's more of a do you think you'd be able to stand six months in a hotel all by yourself so not specifically the Overlook, but... Yeah, not specifically the Overlook. I was just curious if you thought you could do well, it. Well, I mean, we're pretty isolationist as it is. <laughs> so I don't think it would be too big of a problem. I, mean, I would take all of my hobby crap with me, and I would have more than enough to do. Are you kidding? In my I just downtime. sit and read without being distracted. I only have to go down to turn the boiler off twice a day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I would probably forget to do it and blow up and die, but... Spoilers! <laughs> but that's just because I forget everything and my life is run on alarms. That doesn't happen in the movie. But I think it's symbolic of what everything's boiling to in the whole... It everything. Is. It's it's like... And I think the explosion is like symbolic of the, the anger, too. Because that's always symbolized with the explosion. The final destruction yeah. of it. Yep, nope, it doesn't happen in the movie. They open up after they fix whatever they need to fix and open up for the next season. Hmm. Then they end up getting... Like, they just can't get back to that black spot or can't continue to be profitable or whatever and end up sh just shutting it down. So, I do want to say I'm not a big fan of Stanley Kubrick and I think he missed the whole point of the story with this. Or he just didn't care and did his own thing anyways. Both of those are highly likely. Because um, the only other work that I'm really familiar with his of is A Clockwork Orange. And again, he missed the mark considerably with that movie from the book. And like I, I understand some... like some things just don't translate very well from one medium to another. That's perfectly understandable. But it, it goes beyond that. It's more like he just kind of hijacks somebody else's artwork and then does a crappy copy of it that looks really smart and intelligent. And in a lot of ways, it is. But he then turns it and makes it his own thing and says, yep, this is mine now. But that's just my interpretation of the little bit of his work that I've seen. Because he's got... I mean, he's one of the most praised directors in cinema history, especially contemporary stuff. But, yeah. Well, I guess since you had a little blip about the movie, I'll make a little blip about the book. I, prior to this, claimed to not be a Stephen King fan because I absolutely hated it. Hated it. But uh, The Shining was a genuinely scary, I guess. More thrilling than scary, but a genuinely scary book. Unnerving? Yes. And it was good. Other than those random moments? Other than these the random Stephen moments, King -isms. yes. <laughs> so, anyways, um, tell us if you would be able to be an off-season caretaker at a hotel 
part of the reason why I still ask that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, so if you're on the YouTubes, go ahead and comment that down below. I suppose you can throw it up at us at Twitter if you want. That link will be down below as well. But really, don't expect a reply there. Uh, I just want to use that for pushing information. So um, channel updates and stuff will go there. And what else? Yeah. Uh, if you enjoy what we do here and you think you know other people who would enjoy it, share it with them. I think that's about the only way to get past the algorithm. Uh, you know, it's a, a consistent thing to keep the name or keep the information spreading rather than just relying on the algorithms which change at will <laughs> almost it seems uh god there's so much stuff to try to remember right now <laughs> oh, we forgot another thing hmm. did it pass oh yeah we'll come back to that here in a second we'll circle back around on that <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say something what the hell was it i have no idea oh uh if you want to support us in another way we do have our other channel. It's not a podcast. It's just strictly YouTube. Uh, Weird Cat Gaming. Go check us out there where we talk about tabletop gaming stuff. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. We're getting back into it. We've got to rebuild the channel, and we're kind of rebranding it a little bit. And we're on hiatus, so. But it should be back up and running by the time this comes out. Uh, so, Pastor Phil, I don't think it passes. I don't think it passed either. There's, well, a lot of the things are similar. I think there was too There's much that too was much different. Delineation from things. Is it because, like, the, by leaving out all the background stuff and, like, the, the flashbacks are actually a very key element, too, because it shows, it's a way of demonstrating how he changes and how the hotel takes over him. And,. Without those there, you don't get that. It's it's just like the hotel is just slowly possessing him, but it's using his emotional weakness to do it. Like a, a just generic possession story, and that's not yeah. what's actually happening there. The hotel has an actual purpose, and that's and the shining isn't really explored either. No. So, it's not. so thmet or through the cinema medium. It kind of, like, Doctor Sleep's a sequel, but it's, like, just a sequel because it has Danny. And that's pretty much it. Um, also, keep your eyes out because somebody's also interested in watching the movie on this one. So, we will probably revisit this after Lynn watches it to get some other... Because there's some other things to explore that I didn't really get into as in-depth or at all. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> that was abrupt. Unceremonious departure. <laughs> <laughs>